just as the country was starting to open up and we were starting to feel a little bit normal again or feel the hopes of returning to normalcy. Wham! The counts are going up. The cases are going up. States in the Southwest and the West in particular are skyrocketing in terms of daily cases and total cases. Is it a spike? Is it a second wave? Is this the new normal? Are we never going to get out again? Or are, they the, are these the headlines, distorted numbers? Is this the media? Is this some other game that's being played on all of us? What's the truth? What do you have to know? And what is safe for you to be able to do? Well, I've got award-winning medical journalist, Dr. Max Gomez with me today to break it all down. The numbers, the sicknesses, the treatments, the testing, all of it. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Please don't forget, rate and review us, and please, please share it. Everybody needs to get an understanding of what the truth is behind all of these numbers, and we all need to get out of our house. Good morning, Facebook. It is early, earlier than usual on a, I don't even know, oh, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday morning. And the reason we're doing this today is because Dr. Max Gomez is so busy, and this was when I could get him. And I don't know about you, but the headlines, the spikes, the let's slow down the opening ups, let's put more masks on, let's not be able to go to the bars and restaurants, which we've been so wanting to do, is really upsetting. I mean, there's the frightening part of it, and then there's the upsetting part of it, because we all want to get back to our life. And we're now at the risk of being put into cages again. Now, I'm, ex- ex- you know, not cages, but you know what I mean. We're at the risk of being put back in. Anyway, so Dr. Max Gomez is back with me, and I wanted to be able to get the truth. He knows so much about this. So um, welcome. Let me just remind you of a couple things. Um, we've got other videos with Max. I've been doing these Facebook Lives about once a week. This video, actually, I'm going to rebroadcast this in our usual Thursday afternoon spot in case you know people that want to see it. These videos are on the Facebook page. We also put them all onto our YouTube channel, Bottom Line Inc. So anytime you've seen anything, want to go back to it, they're always over there. So you can go back, tell your friends about it. This is such important stuff, and you're not getting it from, from most of the headline news. Um, we also actually, because... People are really concerned about what can they do besides face masks, besides social distancing, what can they do to protect themselves while there isn't yet vaccines, while we're talking about treatments. And again, Max and I are going to talk about what you need to know about treatments. Is this becoming a treatable disease? Um, But I'm actually hosting a six-week, bottom line is hosting a six-week immunity lifeline program. Um, and you can still sign up with it for it. We started it last week, but you can catch up. That was kind of the overview with Dr. William Lee, um, who wrote the great book, Eat to Beat Disease. And he's joining me on two of the segments. Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum is joining me on four of the segments. Our next session is tomorrow night at five o'clock. So there'll be a link in the chats here so that you can go and sign up and check that out because it's really valuable. We need to be in control. We need to be able to, to help ourselves to be able to be as strong as we can for ourselves and our family. Um, so, and also put your questions in. Dr. Max, again, he knows everything. I, I love Max, he's so smart. So put your questions in the chat and my very high tech friend is gonna send me, send me notes. So if you ever see me looking down, I'm not checking my groceries. I'm actually getting messages about what to talk about um, and any questions that came in from you all. Um, so let me now, without further ado, introduce Dr. Max Gomez, who's sitting there, um, nine-time Emmy Award-winning medical journalist. Um, he's known and loved by New Yorkers for decades. Um, he's currently on CBS TV, and he's received an excellence in a Time of Crisis Award from the New York City Department of Health for his coverage during the 9-11 attacks. Um, 
He was the moderator of the fourth International Vatican Conference, Unite to Cure, How Science, Technology, and 21st Century Medicine Will Impact Culture and Society, which focused actually on stem cell research, speaking of exciting areas of, of medicine. Um, he truly is one of the smartest people I know, and you can learn all about Max and follow him at drmaxgomez.com. Good morning, Max. Thank you for fitting me into your schedule. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. You know, uh, my mother would have believed that and my father would have been proud of uh, that introduction. <laughs> As well, you deserve it. You know I'm your, your number one fan always. All right. So, Max, let's jump right into it, okay? Second okay. spike. Is this one B? Like it's the the pattern is so weird. It's like the people that were low before are now spiking. So how how are the experts defining this? So the first thing we ought to say is that this is a rapidly changing scenario, pandemic uh, situation, treatments, etc. Right, and so with that as a caveat. Things could be changing on us even as even as we speak, right? You and now. I were just joking this morning. Like, you know, you, you blink and they've changed the rules, and Dr. Fauci is now in front of Congress, so we don't know what's going to come out of that. Right. Fauci and, and Redfield from the, the director of the CDC, they're in front of Congress while we are doing this. So who knows if anything is going to change out of that? We don't think a lot, but the numbers clearly are changing a lot. So what we saw, I believe, is um, you know, we called it the first wave, and, and a wave is kind of um, not a bad uh, metaphor for this because it hit in the places where you are going to see a lot of um, tourism, immigration, and so forth. That's where you saw the early uh, wave hit. Mm -hmm. You know, but this country is extremely mobile, and what you saw was this wave kind of moving across to the areas that were initially less impacted. Um, that's number one. And number two, I think that um, it's probably or it's likely that the folks in those other areas thought, huh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, forget about it. You know, that's who they are over there. We're going to be okay. We're not New York. Now they're finding out that there's a starting to look a lot like New York because the virus doesn't care, you know, where you live or what your politics are or anything else. If you have an infected person and you're not following some of the guidelines to try to keep from getting infected, the wave will move across the country, which is what we're seeing. And to so it's really take is that a movement. This isn't, it's not like it's coming back, that it really is a movement because even in states where they've, we have like Connecticut, now we were one of the hotbeds to start and it's one of the lowest rates now. Correct. Um, right. So well, that's where I was going, which right. is to take that wave metaphor one step further. If we're not careful in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, you will see the wave just like a wave on the ocean hits a wall or whatever, and then bounces back. It could bounce back at us if we're not careful. But with that bounce back though, is that more people will have been exposed, more people will have antibodies, more people will have herd immunity as it develops with the exposure. So that's a possibility. That's, that's, we don't know. That's likely. Right. The, the, part that's the, the, uh, the, the part that we don't know about all of that is how immune are people really? We're, everybody's kind of assuming that these antibodies that, that we get 
make us immune and that we might have herd immunity, people will be less susceptible. Uh, some of the studies indicate that, that that antibody immunity, A, doesn't last, may not last very long, like on the order of months maybe. And if you got infected and had a very mild case of COVID-19 or didn't even know, apparently then you, had, you didn't develop a lot of antibodies is what we're finding out. And those antibodies tend to, uh, the antibody levels tend to wane over time and it's not clear how much immunity you get. So while we're hopeful that that's the case, eh, you know, the science is still a little bit uh, shaky on that ground. So again, yeah, and I think the interesting thing is that the pattern is changing, which makes it hard to wrap your arms around, right? So that now the people, so bits and pieces, different information, different places. We've got younger people that are supposedly getting it more than older people had been. Um, we've got, they're thinking that, you know, that the, the hot states is as, as the temperature heated up, that the virus would go away. But now it's all these hot states. The virus hasn't gone away in those. It was never uh, the case. That was never the case, by the way. That was always nonsense, but go ahead. I'm just talking the theories that have been out no, there. This is what's been out there. And I'm trying to help people, you know, we're going to get to the place and put this in perspective and do they have to be scared or not scared? Because at the bottom line, that's what anyone cares about. Do I have to be scared of this thing? Um, now, to me, there's some reassuring things. There are, you know, there was a question of about did states that opened up early. So Georgia opened up early. They haven't risen. There was a question about the protests. You know, was this hotbeds where the protests were? But Minneapolis, I believe, has not gone up. So it seems that it's back to your original statement about exposure as much as anything, where there was ex exposure was lower and it's simply moving across. Yeah, and the, the let me go back to the, uh, the, the protest part of that. Um, you have to, you, you can't hang your hat too heavily on, on the fact that Minneapolis didn't necessarily see a big spike because uh, chances are that many of the people at, in those protests were not from Minneapolis. They went to the protest, may have gotten may have gotten exposed, and may have gone back to their home communities, where that's that that may be contributing to some of these uh, spikes in other communities. But nevertheless, you would have expected at least some uh, some spike or some rise in in Minneapolis. Um, so that part is that part is true, and it's it's a wave that's moving across. So young people. Uh, at least according to what everybody, you know, what the scientists are saying, it looks like the, it's almost half, by the way, of the cases now that are testing positive. It's, last time I saw it was around 44%, might even be a little higher, are in people under the age of 25, I think it is. So, so you know, they're not, A, they're not immune. They may not get as sick as older people uh, unless they have, you know, some of this underlying uh, comorbidities, underlying medical conditions like obesity or diabetes, which these days young people do have. Um, so they may not get as sick, but they are getting infected. So uh, let's that's because they're out there, they're out and about without the, the masks and social distancing. So let's go back to though this basic premise. You made an interesting statement. Some people are getting sick this virus is likely going to be with us for a while. Correct. I'm using that term you know, loosely, a while. It's a while, three months, three years, 30 years, I don't know. It's not going away anytime soon. Correct. And people are gonna get sick, just like they get 
you know, the flu, just like they get chicken pox, just like they get whatever, all sorts of things all the time. The coronavirus cold, the common cold that we all get regularly, right? So to say that young people, yes, different strain. Although the interesting thing about that, you know, you're talking about how we don't know about how the long-term immunity on this coronavirus, well, that coronavirus, there is, like it's constantly morphing. We're constantly getting the cold, getting a cold. So right. the, exactly. a whole lot of different strains there. That, right. So that, doctors that. don't yet know what this strain of coronavirus it's is going to, to do and how it's going to behave at all and if it'll be similar to that one. Right. Um, it doesn't upset me that young people are getting it because people are going to get stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, the question and the thing that we need to think about is, as you said, how bad is it? And looking at the stats, there's the cases, there's looking at the cases, the deaths and the hospitalizations, right? Because testing is up. I read a stat yesterday that testing is up 23%. This is from uh, Goldman Sachs has some stat tracker that they're doing. That uh, testing was up 23%, but positive cases were only up 6%. So, so that the, the rate, like it's, the, again, these numbers are scary. We have, we're hitting record numbers in all these states. More people are getting it. More, so there, but there's, so there's definitely a wave going on. There's, but there's also more testing. But the question is how sick are people getting? And again, go back to have that original concept of bend the curve. Can the healthcare system handle it? Can we treat people? Can we help people? Because again, we are all going to get sick at some point in time and we need so, to be able to live a life. So let's talk about that. Like, yeah, you know, so let's, know, what let's, should we really be afraid of here, right? Let's un unpack that a little bit here. Yes. Um, the 6% uh, testing is up 25%. You said 6% positivity. Testing was up 23% and po positive was about 6%. That's going to vary dramatically by state and by location. Yes. Florida had Florida and South South Florida, I think, has a, almost a 25 percent uh, positive rate. So it, it, that yeah. that really that's going to vary a lot depending yeah. on, on, on where you are. Yeah. Um, and again, positive do, it does not equate to hospitalization and certainly not to death. Mm -hmm. um, so but it does mean that you need to be careful um, when you said I'm not too concerned about young people uh, getting it. Um, from the standpoint of they probably won't get very sick, mm -hmm. I agree with that. From the standpoint of they then can become spreaders to mom, dad, grandpa, or if they volunteer at a senior citizen home or something like right. that, they could be they could be spreaders. Um, that's the that's the bigger concern when it comes to uh, the under twenty five uh, high rate of infection. Now let's see what else was there. I said something else yesterday. It was a study, kids in daycare that had stayed open for healthcare workers during this crisis mm -hmm. and that they didn't bring it home to the parents. Did? Did not. Did not. That the rates of transmission off these kids that were out in daycare during the early stages of this, they were not transmitters. But were they, I mean, do we know how positive, what the number was in terms of whether they were positive or not? I do not know that. Yeah, so I do not know that. But they were out there. They were with groups of kids, right? They, these were not, they weren't quarantined because they were out going to daycare every day and their parents mm -hmm. were, were healthcare workers or they were first responders or they were out in the world. So the parents are out, 
they're coming home, the kids are in the houses, they're going back to these, these care centers and they were not transmitters. Mm. So it's like, it, it's anachronistic, like the, the different, different behavior in different places. Again, it depends on where the, where the health, you know, where the daycare was, what community it was in, what the prevalence was in that area. And while some of them may not have been transmitters that way uh, or spreaders that way, uh, we know that in other cases, uh, they can be. So it's a little bit of pay, playing some roulette there as to are you going to, you know, roll the dice there. That's a, that's a mixed metaphor. That's craps and roulette. <laughs> it's uh, early. We'll, be, we'll mix all of our metaphors up. I'm not much of a gambler. Are you going to roll the, are you going to roll the dice on the fact that they may not be uh, spreaders or maybe they are spreaders? Uh, turns out that, well, that's a whole nother area. We're talking about the, the pediatric uh, inflammatory disease that, that some kids have been getting this miss C as it's called. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a whole nother that's issue. Different. Yeah. Let's, let's not go there for the moment. Let's stay yeah. back. Let's go back to the sicknesses versus the hospitalizations versus the deaths. Right. Again, mm -hmm. to me, I've always said, and you and I have agreed on this, that hospitalizations is the number that, that matters a lot because cases is a reflection of testing. And then we can talk in a bit about the, the current state of the testing and how accurate it is. Um, deaths they acknowledged that there was inflation in the death assignments dr burks even said that they were about 25 percent inflated and i heard a really frightening thing this morning or i guess i saw it that medicare pays 20 percent premium on covid patients so there's a grand incentive for doctors to assign covid on a death certificate or on a treatment certificate because they make more money on it right so to me the measure has been hospitalizations to a great extent as i'll call it the bellwether for how serious it is that uh that premium that medicare pays well is to the hospital right uh, because uh, you know not very many of these COVID patients are being treated uh, that are called COVID 19 are being right. treated in the community um, and while that is a, a premium to the hospital, hospitals were still losing money hand over fist when it came to overall the big overall picture because they, they had you know. Totally understand. This isn't about that else. piece of it. So I'm just so saying yeah, there's incentive for them to assign it to COVID. So, right. So testing, um, to be clear, testing doesn't cause COVID. People saying, well, if we didn't, if we tested less, we'd have fewer cases. You know, <laughs> no. Know you just wouldn't about, count them. You wouldn't talk yeah, about them. We weren't counting them. We would know right. about, we right. wouldn't know about as many cases. Correct. So, so it gives us a number that we, that then gives us, uh, the scientists call it the denominator. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we've got to know how many people uh, are out there getting sick. And then we get a better handle on how many, are, I mean, how many are infected. Then we have a better handle on how many are actually getting sick how many are actually ending up in the hospital and how many may, may be dying. The hospitalization number and the death rate, uh, aside from any inflationary aspect to it, uh, is, uh, has dropped substantially for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is now uh, we've learned a lot over the past few months as to how to treat patients how to keep them out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Once, once you, once you're in the hospital, you're on that kind of slippery slope. Yeah, I mean, if you really have to be, you have to be. But 
going into the hospital is already a slippery slope. If you get intubated, that's a really slippery slope because not too many people come back right. uh, from that cliff, from that ledge. But even uh, that, they're far fewer getting intubated and needing the ventilators because they realized well, that was actually harming a lot of them. Exactly, right. exactly. So, so we, they, they, the doctors have now learned a lot about how to, how to treat, how better to treat, even though we don't have a real effective treatment, but how to triage them and keep them out of the hospital, uh, keep them off out of the ICU, off intubation, right. and out of the morgue. So does, does, the, does the medical community right now, where's hospitalizations? I mean, I've heard that Houston is near capacity, but overall, again, early on, it was, do we have ventilators? Do we have PP, you know, the, the protective equipment for the healthcare workers? Um, do we have beds? Do we have a, does the, can the system currently handle people coming in to be treated for this? It's like we've got 600,000 people, I think, a year that die of heart disease. <laughs> so they're going through the hospital system as well. So do we have an infrastructure that can handle this at this point in time? And the answer to that is it depends on where the cases are showing up. Um, Houston is seeing a huge spike right. and that hospital system is at capacity or near, near being overwhelmed. If you talk about average across the entire country, yes, we can probably handle it. But okay. the problem is they're not evenly spread. So if you go to Houston, if you go to uh, Dallas, uh, Miami, other places, um, you know, they may not be able to handle that sudden spike that, that, that we've seen. If you spread it out, sure, but that's, that's not how the disease is, is working. Eventually, the wave of infection uh, will move away from Houston and they'll be able to, to handle things again. But, you know, it's going to be that kind of a thing depending on where the spike is. So, and some of the treatments in the hospital, so they're getting better at treating them in the hospital. Um, remdesivir was just approved for use. So let's talk about that because that, if, if nothing else, it supposedly reduces the time in hospital from 15 days to 11 days, which means you can push more people through the hospital. So, but I mean, is that an effective treatment and a positive move? There was a lot of enthusiasm for it. It's a tiny flicker of good news, but the, op the operative words there are tiny and flicker. Uh, they, it's, it's just not that big a deal. It didn't, mm -hmm. while it moved from 15 to 11 days, it didn't show any survival benefit. Okay. Um, it's, it's an expensive drug, at least it is now until public uh, pressure on, on Gilead makes them drop the uh, price some. Yeah, uh, super expensive, especially when you compare it to to other things that we'll talk right. about in a bit. So, you know, it's an antiviral. It has to be started uh, very early on, just like Tamiflu for, uh, for influenza. Uh, it has to be started very early in the, in the course of the disease. Before they get, but like first symptom or but like, cause they're not getting, they're not giving them until they're in the hospital. I thought that was helping the, the more serious right. people. Right, I mean, no, but before they end up intubated, if, if I think if they're intubated, it, it had very little uh, effect. Um, you know, most of the experts I've talked to who don't, don't have any skin in this game uh, have said it's, um, it, it's not much. Mm -hmm. I, I would not hang uh, my hat on, on that 
pulling me back from the ledge. Um, it's, it's, and, it, it, and it'll certainly be pricey, especially if the whole healthcare system has to pay for it. All right, how about, so you're not, you're not giving me encouragement at the moment and we're not helping people feel better, but honesty and is honesty, which is good. How about the dexamethasone, the, the steroid? That's, that's a big deal. It reduce death by 30%. That's a big deal. That is very inexpensive drug. I mean, it's pennies a dose, mm -hmm. uh, widely available, widely approved internationally. Um, and giving that steroid, uh, if, it if it reduces death by 30% with a relatively short course with, again, relatively few side effects. Again, it's a well-known drug um, uh, with a pretty decent safety profile, particularly when you bank, you know, uh, compare it to the risk of someone close to death, uh, that's a big, that's a big deal. A uh, 30% reduction. And it's something that can be uh, a treatment that can be instituted now. So how come that's not all over the headlines? It's cheap. It's available. You and I have talked for years about, you know, medicine's love, love affair with steroids, which, you know, <laughs> Um, so, I, re I reported it. What can right. I? What can I tell you? I reported it. Right. I, it may not be but all. Over the it's like remdesivir is all over the headlines. Anytime that that they've got it, something on it, they twitch. It's headline oh, news. And the stock prices fly. But d this one, the dexamethasone, it's around forever. It's cheap. It's available. It's relatively safe, and it clearly cut mortality by thirty percent. Two things going on here. Um, First, as far as dexamethasone goes, first, it's, it, you know, it's not up to the patient right. to tell the doctor, oh, I want this and I don't want that drug or I want this or, or, or whatever. Dexamethasone is already standard of care for COVID-19 in virtually all hospitals that I know of. Okay, so even though it may not have been in the headlines, the doctors and the medical community has adopted it. They know about it and that is now standard of care. So that's huge. Let me just say that again. The point of this whole conversation is how scared should people be by this new influx, right? And that to me is under it because again, that's what we're all living in. So if you're cutting mortality rate by 30% and there are other things also further up where death rate is significantly lower on this than they were originally foreseeing. That to me is enormous, Max. Well, that, that is very hopeful. On the other hand, once again, you know, it's like uh, birth control that's 95% effective. If you fall in that 5%, you're 100% pregnant. So even though you've got a 30% reduction in, in mortality, you've still got a big number that are right. getting very sick and, and dying. And so I'm, are you going to roll that dice? So yes, it, it's hopeful. And this is where we're, you know, we're moving, we're moving the line. Uh, towards finding things that will keep people uh, from dying. Let me go back to why remdesivir mm -hmm. is big. For some reason, our health, our public health uh, officials and politicians grabbed onto that. And when they have briefings where they're waving the remdesivir flag, that then became a 
uh, a, you know, the little bit of hope that everybody was looking for. And it's coming from the big cheeses at the NIH, at the CDC, at the White House, and they're waving that flag. And so that's why it gets it. That's why it ends up in the headlines. Well, you may not be allowed to say it, but I can, I'm allowed to say it because I don't take advertising dollars. Pharmaceutical industry pays a lot of people salaries throughout the media to pay a lot of people salaries throughout R&D in the universities, et cetera. There's, a, there's private money that's going into those university studies. So follow the money. You, you may not be able to say it because you work on TV. I can say it. I'm not on TV. So. I've, I've, I've always said when people right. ask me, why did that happen or how does that happen? Right. It's always follow the money. So I totally understand that. All right, let's go upstream now. So, okay, so once, oh, actually one more thing. How about the blood plasma? They were using the, um, the plasma with antibodies. Is that helping? So there've been a few things that have, that have developed just recently about uh, plasma and, and antibodies. First, it was called convalescent plasma. Mm -hmm. uh, Mount Sinai did one of the early studies on that where they found people who, and Mount Sinai and Hackensack in New Jersey, Hackensack Meridian, uh, did another one of those studies. They found people who had gotten very seriously ill, which means they had a very high antibody level, antibody titer. Right. It's called. They volunteered. They took their plasma. It, you know, that's a harm, pretty harmless procedure. It's like giving blood. They, they take your blood, yeah. spin out the plasma, give right. you the red blood cells back. Those, that plasma is now very high in antibodies that were called neutralizing antibodies. They mm -hmm. would stop presumably the virus from continuing to infect lung cells, heart cells, et, et cetera. And that seemed to be a reasonable um, treatment to bring people again back from, from the brink, people who were very, very sick. This gave them enough of, uh, of a boost that allowed them to then recover. Mm -hmm. right? However, that is a very, you can't scale that. Right. That's not a scalable treatment because there just aren't enough people mm -hmm. who have gotten that sick and recovered, who also, by the way, have to be clean of a lot of other diseases. Right. And they, they want to donate. And they want to donate. Right. They can't have hepatitis. They can't have HIV. They right. can't have a whole lot of, so they've got to be tested for a lot of things. Yeah. So already you're taking that universe of potential donors that you can make this convalescent plasma from down smaller and smaller. So right. for a handful of people, it's a valuable treatment, but you can't scale it up. And I presume cost is high. Also, yeah. also, you know, they were looking at it as, you know, we don't care what the cost is if we can keep people from dying. Right. So, but now what is doable, and which is what I said when we first started talking about this back month or two ago. Mm -hmm. And now an intermediate step is a, um, a company in Israel has uh, figured out a way to concentrate some of these antibodies, again, to turn them into a real drug. Mm -hmm. That's okay, but also hard to scale. Right. A different company in the States here, uh, and this is what I, what I said from the beginning, the only way you're going to turn these antibodies into a real drug that is scalable for thousands and thousands of people is you clone the gene from the white blood cells that are making this specific antibody. That's been done. Right. 
that has already been done. And, you know, that's not an easy trick, but that is kind of standard, you know, biotech uh, genetics and cloning. Now you take that gene, stick it into bacteria in flasks, and the bacteria are happy as clams. They start pumping out this neutralizing right. antibody left and right. Piece of cake. Now you're making bazillions of these antibody copies. You take it out, purify it, and now you've got something that'll work as a product that is scalable. It ain't cheap. Well, let me ask you this though. Isn't that the way? So, again, for the uneducated, and I'm really smart, but I'm not, I didn't really go to medical school. Um, that's, isn't that what vaccines are trying to do? You take the antibodies, you concentrate it, you no. give it to somebody? No, so. I mean, conceptually. This, this antibody approach is what you call a passive vaccine. Right. Meaning it's not your immune system fighting the virus. Right. It's the antibodies from theoretically somebody else's immune system that's been cloned and turned into a drug. So that's called a passive vaccine because it's not your own immune system fighting the virus. You follow? I do. But what's, so what's the difference though? Because when you get a vaccine, they inject antibodies into you as well. So what is it that no, causes no, no, no. the not, immune not, reaction? No, you're not injecting antibodies when you're, when you're doing an active vaccine as opposed to oh, a you're, vaccine. Oh, so you're injecting live. You're injecting the virus perhaps. Right an inactivated virus, a piece of the virus, so that your body will make those antibodies. So that's the difference between a passive vaccine, which is how it used to be um, for hepatitis A. If you were traveling uh, abroad to some country in Africa, for example, when I went to cover the the genocide in Rwanda, I got a, a passive vaccine of a lot of IgG, of a lot of antibodies to hepatitis A, which hurt like hell because they give you this big slug of stuff into your butt and then it just sits there as long as you're going to be there so that it'll give you that protection. Now we have a real active Mm -hmm. vaccine against uh, hepatitis A, but back then, this goes back, whatever, 20 years or more, no more than that, uh, 25 or 30 years ago, you got that passive vaccine. So that's that's an interim approach that is doable while we wait and see what's going to happen with a vaccine. And that's a whole nother uh, area. How much time we got? <laughs> well, let's, we could talk about vaccines. But I was actually going to go next to talking about, I'll call it the in-doctor's treatment, because we did the hospital there. So there's some, again, trying to figure out how this, in the end, we're going to talk about, is this a treatable disease, right? So where, where is this going to get classified? So I'm working my way backwards. Um, so, what about so now let's talk about you come down with some symptoms mm-hmm. and there's the what what are the doctors doing so let's talk about the h word the hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. which has been demonized like crazy um but and there's still the fight going on there are some tests there have been you know, a bunch of studies that have been debunked that said it that were bad but then the studies were debunked and said that they were the research on those were bad You've been talking to people, and I've seen things as well, where doctors really are using it. They really are saving lives with it. What are you seeing with that? Because that's, again, cheap drug that people know about. And if you catch it early, you know, it's reducing hospitalizations. So this, is, this goes back also to a combination of 
science, politics, public relations, all sorts of things got into this cauldron to really muddy the waters. Mm -hmm. um, um, the studies that have been out there on uh, hydroxychloroquine were all over the map in terms of the protocols that were used. Some used chloroquine, not hydroxychloroquine. Which is chloroquine is known, is known to be more toxic than hydroxychloroquine. Uh, some used it with zinc, some without zinc. Some used it with zinc and azithromycin, an antibiotic, uh, some, and various combinations. Some and used, some it, used it super hard. The Brazil study, which they stopped early, it was triple the dose. Right. The doses were all, were all over the map. They were given to patients who were intubated near death, some who had just been hospitalized. So it, was, it really was apples and oranges. It was very hard to make sense out of this. Last week, I was on the phone with Dr. Zelenko, mm -hmm. who originally, who really started this. He has submitted um, a case file of, I think, 300 some odd patients uh, in a study to uh, the British Medical Journal. I believe it's on the preprint server already. Mm -hmm. And we'll wait and see what the British Medical Journal uh, does. But I, I looked at that and it looks like the key there is you have to do it just like Tamiflu and perhaps remdesivir. You have to start it in the outpatient setting when people are just beginning to be symptomatic. Once they get really sick and in the hospital, this isn't going to have that much of an effect. That's the theory. That particular uh, protocol has really not been tested. And by the way, Zelenko thinks that zinc is the most important part of this, not so much the hydroxychloroquine, although together, obviously, they are uh, synergistic. And, those, and what's the, the action that they're doing? My understanding is that it's blocking the virus from being able to replicate. That's, that's the theory. Right. Um, I don't know that anyone has done the basic science to really definitely uh, uh, demonstrate that, but the theory is that you stop it uh, from, from replicating. And in fact, just this morning, uh, Dr. William Hazeltine used to be uh, uh, up at Harvard. He was really one of the pioneers in HIV, mm -hmm. uh, obviously many years ago, uh, one of the smartest guys around on this. And he says, look, we have other drugs that we can and should be testing against this virus. Uh, a coronavirus is what's called a retrovirus. It's, a, it's an RNA virus. It doesn't have any DNA. It has RNA which when it gets into the body needs or into a cell is dependent on an enzyme to then backtrack, make DNA and make new RNA to make the factory to make a lot more, right. a lot more viruses. He says anti-retrovirus drugs have turned HIV from a death sentence into largely, not 100%, a chronic treatable disease. He says we have drugs that we need to test against this. Uh, zinc and, and you know and hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin 
may in fact have that that effect but you have to the, the experiment has to be done in the right way on the right patients at the right time in order to be able to understand whether or not it works i don't know well, whether it works but it hasn't been tested that way right well and you know have they broken down hydroxychloroquine hydroxychloroquine and zpac zinc hydroxychloroquine and zinc they got to do all the pieces. those are yeah now, those are all the different combinations you'd think that at 50,000 new cases a day they should be able to find enough people for these tests just saying if yeah if if um uh, if, well, when there's a will, there's a way, but apparently there's not a will. Can patients ask their doctor? So you said that you're in a hospital, you know, especially if you're extremely sick, you don't have a lot of control over your treatment. But I would think I go into the doctor's office, they say either, yes, you have it, or, and we're going, again, we're getting to the test. And someone I know asked a question about the test effectiveness, so I'm going to get to that. Um, and if you have other questions, please put them out there. Um, but now I'm coughing. And you know, so... Can I say to my doctor when he sends me home to drink water and take, you know, Tylenol? What can I, can I take hydroxychloroquine? Can you give it to me? The, again, the risk is low, assuming I don't have underlying. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. Right, right. In theory, that should be doable because any approved drug can legally be prescribed off label which this would be an off-label yeah. use by the, by the doctor. The problem is that has now been essentially prohibited in many, if not most states. You can't get the, the doctor will say, well, sure, unless the doctor for some reason or somehow has his own stash of hydroxychloroquine, which some doctors do have, uh, I am told, um, he can write a prescription. He'll take it to the pharmacy and the pharmacy says, I can't fill it. Doesn't this I'm seem so? Let me ask. Let me ask Zelenko. So, what about the? Um, I always forget the name of the. It's not AFib, but uh, the name of the um, firing issue, the heart rhythm issue. Um, the QT elongation in the, thank you. QT uh, elongation. In the EKG. Was Zelenko finding a problem with that? It'll, he didn't. He says he didn't. Right. Again, well, my right. understanding was that again, if you high high doses, very long periods of time, you might in some people find it but short doses because you're not talking about a high dose or a long phase well, using I think it. it's a five-day course, right. if I recall correctly. I think it was a five-day course. And an EKG is an easy way to monitor somebody if, if they're starting to develop right. this. And you can send home a halter monitor. You can be on a 24-7 monitor. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, there are ways to ameliorate that part of the, uh, of the side effect, which, again, no one seemed to discuss in these studies as they as they uh, very quickly dismissed the right. hydroxychloroquine uh, well now we're back to a little bit of politics as well which i won't go down that path um let's talk about zinc for a second again so and i've talked in other videos with dr jacob teitelbaum again in the immunity program that we're going to be doing that may come up at some point zinc <laughs> so cheap and so theoretically protective and there's been studies on zinc's protective nature with viruses across the board mm. so shouldn't i call it, shouldn't everybody be taking zinc well you know i hate to recommend stuff like i know that. right we're not recommending we're not prescribing and we can't but shouldn't everybody be asking their doctors about taking zinc how about if we try it that way <laughs> well, it's, the it's are 10 bucks for a month 
Yeah, chances are the doctor the doctor is going to say, I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's um, again as long as you're not taking, you know, a pound of the stuff uh, daily. Right. Uh, but what is it, twenty five to fifty milligrams mm -hmm. uh, of zinc a day? Right. As as protection. Has very little, if yeah. any, uh, side effects. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's more than you need, you tend to pee it out anyway. Um, and it's, you know, that's that's one of those cheap, harmless insurance. I think. Well, again, so, and you know, back back to you know, so masks are going to be here for a while. Social distancing will be here for a while. But to my mind, again, there are these other things that people can be doing that would make this all less scary. That puts this in the treatable disease category. You take your multivitamin, you take your zinc, that reduces your risk of sickness. Wouldn't that make sense for people? And we don't have to worry how much, if all the protesters took zinc before they went out to the streets <laughs> or, or before they went to the beach, <laughs> what kind of condition would we all be in? Don't know. Okay. Um, let's talk about testing. So. At this point in time, how accurate are the tests? Let's talk about the swabs, and then we'll talk about the antibody tests. You know, it's like everything else. It depends on who's doing the test. That, that, it, it, Even I mean, the antibodies? Well, the swabs. Okay, let's stick with swabs. Yeah, but, I mean, the technical term is operator dependent. Um, you know, as a person doing the swab, you know, deep enough and, and, and really working the, the little thing right. back in, in your nose that way. And the Is patient has to be tolerant enough because it's going pretty far up there. Yeah, I mean, I had it done a week ago, actually, a week ago today. Uh, I was negative, by the way. Um, and um, I mean, look, it's unpleasant, but it ain't, you know, it ain't childbirth. How's that? Um, so, no one would be coming back for another test on that one. <laughs> right. So, um, and then it has to go to, a, to a, a dependable, reputable lab. So in the right hands, it's probably 95 or more percent accurate. But so how about no, in, in real life, how accurate are these things? You no, know, I don't know what the numbers are nationally in terms of, because that's a, you know, it's also a kind of a hard study to do everybody got on that uh you know that gravy train for a while there uh to see how uh you know to, to make some money off of doing the actual virus testing right. and by the way the virus testing will tell you whether or not you have either the virus uh, you may have the virus um, there are some people who test positive for weeks and weeks that and 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 they and they're fine. They feel fine. Mm -hmm. That is very likely finding uh, shards, remnants, pieces of the viral genome, virus RNA, that's still hanging around in there. But it is that you are probably not. Those are probably not infective virus particles. So is they, that different than the people that are called that they've had it but they were asymptomatic? Um, because if this is a test that's being, if they find this stuff up your nose, they're saying that you've got it. Right. And, and the problem is right now we don't have a way to distinguish between active virus particles 
and just pieces of the virus mm -hmm. that are going to show up as 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 positive. Sorry, but that's what they that's what they got when I show up at the doctor's or in terms of screening right. tests. I mean, you're, if you show up positive, you got to assume that you know that those virus particles. Well, and then yeah. there's the old treat as if, right? So if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, again, it's something probably. that's probably a duck given the environment. Um, so it's the antibody test. Let's how about the antibody test? How accurate is that one? Um, IgG and IgM. Uh, not, not very accurate across the board nationally because that one really was a gravy train. Uh, 60 Minutes just did a, a piece on that where they found that the FDA gave this conditional emergency use authorization to, I forget the number, but it was at least dozens of companies yes. that said, oh yeah, we've got an antibody test. Yes, and five minutes and 15 minutes and an hour all over the place yes and they were garbage there were false positives false negatives they they just were completely unreliable and it's not even a consistent direction that it was false negatives exactly or false positives. exactly it was some some false positives and false negatives that again if you get a blood test and it goes to a legitimate a university lab or some other legitimate lab then Again, you're in the 90 uh, plus percent range of, of accuracy. None of these things hit 100%. How do you know you're a legitimate lab? I mean, are you talking about do it yourself tests? Well, you've got to, I mean, you've got to, if you're going to the big labs. Right. Well, I don't uh, have a choice. So I go to the doctor's office. So right now they're saying, go get your antibodies tested. And oh, by the way, where did this conversation start that we've got all these new cases because there's all this new testing? So well, you ask them, where are you sending? Where are you sending this off to? So, are you but, sending it off? Are you affiliated with Sloan Kettering, Mount Sinai, NYU, or are you, is it going to more likely LabCorp or Quest? Uh, you know the big labs. If you know if he's sending it to you know Joe's Antibody Lab, um, uh, you know I, I would not put a lot of trust in, in the results. Are all these LabCorp, Quest, Mount Sinai, whoever the major hospitals? Are they having, do they have single suppliers as well? Or is there still an array of tests that have an array of um, effectiveness levels? Well, to my knowledge, uh, you know, I've not been, uh, I, I don't know for a fact, but to my knowledge, they do that themselves with the appropriate reagents and so forth. Uh, I would hope and presume, and it appears that they have, you, you know, they, you do, uh, calibration and verification tests to make sure that the reagents that you're using and so forth are in fact uh, accurate and, and you know and effective and are actually giving you a real uh, a real result so are uh, you assuming that all these reports of increased cases that are going on again across the country that these are accurate that these are going through the proper channels of accurate testing well most of those are coming from not from the antibody test, but from oh. the antibody test tells you that you have. Right. So most of these are coming from swab tests. Correct. That may or may not be accurate. Are there, well, are there false positives on, yes, you're just saying that there are false positives because they may be finding. False positives in the sense that. They're finding elements of the. Of the virus. Virus in your nose, but you may not. May not be, but you may not be infectious. Right. And on the but, flip side, I had a question from someone that said, 
she's she or he have been around people that have had COVID, but they haven't contact contracted it, um, even though they've been tested. Now it could be that they just didn't get it. Wait, say that again now. I've got a question from somebody. How accurate are the antibody tests? I've been around people with COVID, but have not contracted it. So could be they're just their immune system is working better. Well, there's a couple. I mean, there's a couple of points here. One is, didn't how do you know you didn't contract it? Right. I mean, did you you know if you if well, you, you didn't have right. if you didn't have a uh, have a test, it may be that you got it and just didn't get very sick. Right. Why? But if you truly didn't uh, contract it, you were around those people, but they didn't cough, sneeze, or breathe in your face. You weren't around them long. The the, the two elements that increase your risk uh, of contracting the virus uh, from other people is dose. How much of the virus are you getting? If you're only getting, you know, a couple of hundred viral particles, probably you're not going to get sick. If you're getting a thousand or more, you're going to get sick. And how long have you been around a person who is sick? Right. So, which also obviously translates into what your dose is. So time and dose. Uh, so if you weren't around that long, if they weren't, coughing, sneezing, talking up close in your, in your face, where you might have been breathing that in. All of those are the variables. Uh, in addition to, did you get tested and do you really know that, uh, that, you, that you weren't uh, sick? The antibody test won't generally, a good antibody test won't come up positive, usually for a month after being exposed. Right, even for IG, the IgG ones? Well, that's for IgG. IgM, comes up a little sooner, but also drops off much faster. All right. Okay. So I just mix them up. I don't know why. Like a yeah. thousand times I look that up and I go like this every <laughs> single time. You'd think I'd remember. All right. One last question, my friend, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, we've been watching this for four months. We've been seeing, you know, try, world's trying to get open up. Kids are trying to get back to school. Um, what do you see in terms of where this is going. Is this going to be, I'll call it, you know, can we put this at some point in the near future in the category called treatable disease versus frightening, you know, mega virus? I had my crystal ball around here somewhere. <laughs> I think you're eating yogurt out of it. Somebody, somebody walked away with it. Um, you know, that's, uh, that, that, that gets into a couple of different things. Are we going to have a vaccine? Mm -hmm. I would not hold my breath on that for any time in the very near future. Hazeltine and, and, and others, uh, Paul Offit, uh, two of the biggest names in immunology and vaccines have all said we have to be very careful that we don't rush into approving because we want to have something, a vaccine that is a not safe, mm -hmm. which is very possible, mm -hmm. or not very effective and people think they're okay right. and they're not. So how we test, normally these vaccine trials take years and take tens of thousands of people to prove safety and effectiveness. There's a, going to be a huge political push to come up with something right. by November. <laughs> Something's happening in November, I don't know what, but by November, there's going to be a massive push to approve right. something right. and we have to be very careful. So that aside, do I think it's going to become a treatable disease? I think so. 
And, but that's where we need to spend much more of our efforts and, and, and money, as, as I think we said once before, and I know we've talked about this uh, before, if 80% of people who get infected with this coronavirus, this SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, novel coronavirus, um, if 80% of them either don't know that they even got infected, have very mild symptoms or disease, or have, you know, serious enough disease, but recover, um, like uh, Chris Cuomo, for example, or, you know, a number of other people. Mm-hmm. He got pretty sick, but he's recovered and he's, and he's doing fine. If 80% of the people who get infected are that, why would we be spending so much of our time, money, and scientific, uh, you know, uh, bandwidth on trying to find vaccines to treat these people and potentially put them at risk. We're going to give them a medication, that a vaccine that may or may not be okay. Hopefully it'll be okay. Where what we ought to be doing is spending our time on that 20% who actually get seriously ill and finding a treatment for them. And right. there are... Catching it upstream. Right. There's a lot of work being done in that, whether it's... Uh, stem cells, natural killer cells that are out there. There are several companies that are doing that. A lot of antivirals, protease inhibitors, they're called, uh, are, the, are what has changed HIV treatment. Mm-hmm. This is something that prohibits or prevents the virus from replicating inside, inside the cell. Those are the things that we need to be working on and, and testing. People are doing that. We need to be spending, I think, more time and effort on that. And the FDA and others need to be paying more attention uh, to that and, and putting a little more emphasis on that so that we can turn it into a chronic, tre- or not even a chronic disease, uh, but a treatable disease potentially. I, I think that's doable. Um, and I think that's going to be a better way to go than trying to vaccinate 7 billion people on the planet. Right. With a vaccine, and from all evidence that we've had so far, whatever immunity people get from the virus tends to fall off and wane, in some cases in months and and, and probably in years. So that means 7 billion people that we've got to keep revaccinating. It's just not happening, right? It, it's... it's, it's um, it's a pipe dream. I just don't see that happening. Well, and again, if it can get into, again, the flu comes around every year. The vaccine is on average 50% effective, but we accept that. And we accept that millions and millions of people get that every year because most of them don't die. Most people don't die from this. And then mm-hmm. if we can get it to that treatable phase. So right. Right. in the right. meanwhile, we do have to continue our social distance. We do have to continue our little Zooms. Masks, hand washing, but it, it makes it, you know. Look, it's uncomfortable. Yes, we have to acknowledge that it's not. It's not fun. It's it's uncomfortable. But let's not turn it into a political football. That's not what it's about. It's you know, people with when, when tuberculosis was a huge deal, we didn't have any problem with people wearing masks and wearing masks for hours and hours on end during the day. It, you know, they didn't. 
have problems rebreathing the tuberculosis. They didn't have their oxygen levels drop or their CO2 levels uh, go up. Doctors and nurses and healthcare workers were wear very tight fitting N95 masks for eight, 10, 12 hours a day on their shift. Somehow they survived all of that. It's not a political statement. It's a public health thing that is going to protect all of us. Wear your damn mask. Wear the mask. But again, I want people not to be so, so afraid. I want that, that if we continue on that path, we can live with this. And there are, there are treatments that are, studies are coming out. So. I agree 100%. I'm not, I, you know, I take care. I wear the mask. I pass people on the street or whatever. You know, I, I'm not terrified. I, you know, I'm not spraying down you know, everything that <laughs> comes in, it comes in the door. Well, and again, it seems back to the original, original comments. And then again, I will guess we'll say goodbye to you that, um, where the, where the wave has come through, it seems to be somewhat stable. And this seems to be the passing wave, which shows me we don't have to continue our diligence, but so in spite of what they're, you know, the horrors and the fears, and you're going to have to go back into your corners. No, some smartness and, this will this should that's, that's what will prevent having to lock down all over again yes all right dr max gomez so much so much always appreciate your wisdom my pleasure stay right. safe wear a damn mask <laughs> all right thank you everybody please stay safe see you soon bye-bye right, bye i'm talking to dr max gomez award-winning medical journalist about truth versus fiction with regard to the latest data regarding COVID-19, the treatments, the testing, the vulnerabilities, the cases, the hospitalizations, and much more. Getting information readers can trust from the world's top insiders is core to how our flagship publication, Bottomline Personal, helps people do better and feel better. Dr. Gomez is one of thousands of top experts who've appeared in Bottomline Personal, not just in healthcare, but in all aspects of life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.